So this morning, I want us to take our Bibles and do as we normally do, open them to our study that we have been in for some weeks now in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we have been having a wonderful time over the past few weeks looking at this passage, this encounter, really, that Jesus Christ is having with the crowd that is following him through the region of Galilee. Of course, Jesus is on his ministry. It has begun. And of course, he's up in the north in Galilee at this time. And Jesus, as we have learned, has just raised a dead man back to life and given him back to his mother. This was her only son. It was a stunning moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ as people saw with their own eyes the power and the compassion of Jesus. Of course, we understand, Jesus, that that is His very character and nature because He is God. He has all power because He is God incarnate and He is compassionate to people in the most perfect of ways. In fact, in verse 16, you notice the response of the people. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Very interesting, yet not surprising, the response. Fear gripped them all. The word fear there is from... In the original language is where we get our word phobia. Phobia. Phobos is the original word. In other words, they were afraid of what they had just seen. They are afraid of what had been taken place because anyone who can do what Jesus did was something otherworldly. He was something either... Someone had come back to life as they proclaim, a great prophet has risen among us, or something has happened from God for us in light of this person. That's how they thought of the prophets. That's what their minds went to when some event was taking place through the prophets, that God had sent some some man, someone with his word, to tell us what God was saying and to do what God was doing. The prophets were the men with whom God had, had given special power, where God was working through them, and their messages were unlike what they had ever heard. And so they conclude that about Jesus Christ. This is the mindset of the crowd following Jesus. He's just a prophet who has risen from the dead. He's a good man. That's not far-fetched from what even they believe today. I remember even 23 years ago, sitting in Jerusalem, in the center of Jerusalem, right next to the old city, talking to the, to the person in the government of Jerusalem who was the head over religion in Jerusalem itself and asking him this very question as we were sitting there, who is Jesus? And he said, well, I know you folks believe that he was God, but we don't believe that. We believe he was just a good prophet. That was in the year 2000. 
I mean, nothing has changed. This is exactly what they think. That God was, through this prophet, who had a name, Jesus, was visiting his people. And of course, in their enthusiasm, they spread the word to all the surrounding districts. They, they were like the little fire lit in the field that spread out as they saw this. They went to tell people what was going on. And certainly the disciples of John the Baptist would have heard about it, and some of John's disciples even would have been in the crowd. They were with Jesus. They were there when Jesus did these things, when He was speaking, when He was validating Himself through the miracles that He was doing. Of course, we've talked about some of those things. We have seen those things, and they report back to John. They go back to where John is in prison because he had been thrown in prison by Herod because he spoke truth to Herod. And so they went back and told John about what was happening in the ministry of Jesus after they had been dispatched by John to go and ask Jesus if he was the one. Are you the expected one, verse 20 said. Of course, Jesus answers them by this display of power. He heals people, and He makes sickness go away, and He restores sight and restores speech, and they saw Him raise the dead. And so John is perplexed about Jesus because John knows about the grace of God that that would come. It's not that John doesn't believe in his cousin as if he isn't the Messiah. John certainly believes that. He knows the truth concerning Jesus. In fact, he is the one who points others to Jesus and says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the details, how that was to happen, were foggy and unclear in the mind of John. God didn't reveal that detail. And so John had preached about the Messiah, that he would come, that he would bring this outpouring of grace upon the the people, that people would be healed of various diseases, that the lame would in fact walk, that the blind would in fact begin to see, that their sight would be restored, the deaf would begin to hear again, and the dead would be raised. Most, though, the gospel, the good news of redemption, the good news of forgiveness for your sin would be preached among all people. And as much as all of that was happening, both physically and spiritually, there were pieces in the mind of John in the prophecy concerning the Messiah that didn't seem to be taking place. The missing part in the mind of John was that of judgment. I see the outpouring of grace of God through you, but what about the judgment? Is there somebody else? Are we to be looking for someone else? The answer that Jesus gives is not what we expect. right? You would expect Jesus to go, hey, hey, listen, cuz. Um, you know, remember what we talked about? He doesn't do any of that. Jesus just begins to do what Jesus does. Rather than answering directly, Jesus just says to the disciples, you go and tell John what you see and what you hear. In other words, he sends John back to the prophets. He sends John back to the very scriptures that John knows. Don't doubt. Don't be perplexed. Don't don't stay there. In fact, just go back to 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 the scriptures and trust what you know. 
Go and report to John what what you have seen and what you have heard. The very things that are happening that that God talked about, that the prophet said, according to the Messiah, the very things you have proclaimed, that is what's happening. Therefore, don't stumble over me. We learned last time that's the great danger, isn't it? Part of the great danger with just being curious about Jesus Christ, just being curious about the things of God. The great danger is not to believe that Jesus is the one. The great danger is to stay perplexed. And yet here is Jesus saying, don't stay there. It's not that it's, it's sinful to be perplexed, but it's, it's not a good thing to stay perplexed when, as I said, you're at the wall of worship. Worship. When you're there wondering what's going on, those moments when you're at the wall in your own understanding, when you're perplexed in your own faith as to how God is working, how God is going to to take care of this, how how God are you going to work through these deals, because I know your promises, I know what you said. Don't allow yourself to be tripped up by that. Don't allow yourself to remain there when you are at the wall. Simply worship God for who He is. In other words, continue to trust. Continue to trust His ways because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Trust Christ, especially in those perplexing times. When we are at the wall of worship, just worship. Worship rather than retreat. Well, certainly those who were following Jesus would have heard what he had said to these men. And the potential was there for the ministry of John to be diminished in the hearts of the people, even though their affinity for John was the similar to their affinity for Jesus, particularly from the religious leaders. It was just curiosity. And so Jesus, after validating his own ministry to the people by raising the dead, Jesus validates John's ministry. Why? Because it was through John that God had chosen to ready his people for the coming of the Messiah. He didn't want to diminish the ministry and the message of John. It was John's ministry and message that that opened the door for the people to go, hey, Messiah's on the scene. And he already knows, Jesus knows that they believe John is a great prophet, right? That's what they thought of the prophets. God visited us. They said that about Jesus. And if they believe John is a great prophet, then why is it? that they're not so willing to believe and embrace Jesus as the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is simply implying you are a fickle people. You are a people who simply are curious and you criticize. You believe that earthly greatness is what you need to be saved. You believe that your own activity, that your own efforts is what you need. And so your attachment to those who you believe have earthly greatness are are superficial at large because you believe in, in being attached to them that you're close to God, that they are a means of being in the presence of God. Notice 
Notice verse 28. I say to among you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, that's Jesus implying. Well, he's certainly saying that, listen, earthly greatness has its place. Earthly calling and, and, and commission by God certainly has its place, and it must be carried out as God has seen forth. But no one on earth, no one in the earthly realm has a greater calling than John. That's certainly true. John had the highest calling. He was a prophet, and he was a prophet that was prophesied by the other prophets. He was foretold that he would come. In fact, just, just, just listen to what the Word of God says concerning John. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 15 and 17, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Of course, this is Gabriel talking. And he will drink no wine, no liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a a forerunner before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then it says in chapter 1, verse 76, and you, child, this is Zacharias now prophesying, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 says of John, he's a voice calling Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert the highway for our God. Of course, the final prophet that we have in the Old Testament, Malachi, in chapter 3 and verse 1 said, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It couldn't be clearer that Messiah was on the way, and one would come before him to prepare the way. And here is John, and he has accomplished his mission. He is now in prison awaiting what is to come to him, and Jesus is there and yet they do not believe him John himself even said in John chapter 1 verse 23 I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord John acknowledges the very prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 that I read just a moment ago, that he himself is the one who is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. So Jesus here in verse 28 says, among the human, in the human realm, there is no one greater. Of course, we understand Jesus to be greater, but Jesus is not of the human realm. Jesus was, is the God-man. He is God taking on human form, born through a woman, yet not born of the seed of man. And so Jesus says, there's no one greater. There's no more mega than John. No one greater than John. No one of greater importance than John. Why? Well, not because of John. Not because somehow John was some special person in and of himself. No. No. John was great because of what his task was to do. 
John was great, not because of John, but John was great because of who he pointed to, Jesus Christ. And the reality is that the greatest significance is not proximity to Jesus. Greatness is not attached to being close to someone who knows God or someone who points to Jesus, but being in the kingdom of God. That's where real greatness lies. And that only comes through a relationship with the king. And that king is Jesus. So Jesus is saying, you... You see, John is great, and so he is. By his calling, he is great. But the, but the microteros, the, the, the one who is least, that's the word in the original, the one who is least, the, the smallest of things, the one with the least influence, the one who has the least following, the least in the kingdom is even greater than an earthly place of John. You think greatness is attached to the things of the earth and what you do. Well, I'm telling you, greatness is attached to Jesus Christ. The microteros, the least in the kingdom is greater than that. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. And so Jesus isn't for a moment intimating that John isn't part of that kingdom. Certainly John is. John's believed upon his own cousin, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, but he wants the people to know that earthly greatness is nothing in comparison to spiritual greatness. And so if you believe John is great, Jesus is saying, and it's evidence here that you believe that because you went out to him, then you must also come to understand that John isn't pointing to an earthly greatness. John is pointing to a spiritual greatness kingdom. Jesus says, and I'm the king. I'm the king. And of course, the people had a different response to John. Notice verse 29 and 30, when all the people heard this, when all the people and the tax gatherers heard this, they they acknowledged God's justice. Yes, God is right. That's right. You're speaking the right thing. God's justified, and and they were baptized with the baptism of John. They went out to John. They heard about John's John preaching sin and forgiveness, and and that they needed to believe that they were sinners and couldn't be right with God by any earthly means. And so you confess your sin. You baptize as this outward act of faith in God for forgiveness. Well, the people and the tax gatherers heard that, and they, and they were baptized. They the dregs of society, the non-great. Many of them were baptized, but verse 30, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the upper echelon religious great people who thought they knew God, who thought they were in God's good graces, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. You see, all they did was go out to John and say, oh yeah, John, he's, he's preaching a bunch of nonsense. We're okay though. Yeah, you people go, but we're fine. John even faced off with them, you remember, by calling them out. You brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Right? Why, in other words, why did you come out to see me? 
Uh, I'm here calling people to repentance and and they need to acknowledge their sin and this is what's going on. And you're coming out. I thought you were righteous already. Why would you come out? Implication is you're just out here because you're curious. So the outcasts and the common people seemingly agreed with Jesus. They certainly said God was just. But the Jewish leaders, no. Those who knew the Scriptures more thoroughly than anybody else, no, they rejected what John was preaching. They didn't believe that it applied to them. They prided themselves on keeping the externals for salvation. Do the outside. Do the law, right? Do the law. Keep the moral code. Do what's required. At least for others to see, at least on an outward way, so that they could think of me as great, righteous living. Not because I believe that I could be perfect. I don't think any Pharisee ever believed, hey, I could be perfect, even though Paul in his own testimony says when it came to the law I was blameless that just means I did it better than everybody else nobody else could point their finger at me it wasn't that they 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 thought they could be perfect but simply to say that what they were doing was sufficient for acceptance with God what I do is sufficient it's enough in other words they were self-convinced that they're shortfalls, whatever those might be, as little as they might be, at least in comparison to their other humans around them, would pass the final muster before the judgment seat of God. That God would look at them and say, well, it's okay, you tried hard. Because they were at least doing that. To repent, to be baptized as an outward reality of what's taking place on the inside, well, that's just too extreme. That's too unnecessary. We would never do that. I've often wondered how the sinful heart can become so dull, so deceived, particularly when it, when it gets involved with religion. Why is it so many within what is called religion are actually lost? Why is it that so many within a a realm of even a dark place like New England where 33% are said to be highly religious, yet actually are deceived? in thinking that they're okay with God. Why is that? They believe they're okay with God when God judges. They say, no, I'm fine. I'm all set. Well, one reason is being far too acquainted with religious ritual. Right? In other words, it's easy to be spiritually brain dead when you're associated with the rituals of religion, and you're familiar with them. We have even traditions here in our own church, and I'm not poking holes in what we do here. I'm just speaking to them as practices of our Christianity that in the minds of some are rituals. So it's not rituals things we shouldn't do, the commands of God, right? They're carried out. We do them, and yet 
Some people will say, because we do them, I'm close with God. We have public prayer because we pray in those ways, because we gather for prayer, because we have these times of prayer. Is it this prayer time that that you've attached to yourself? Did you think, okay, I I have a proximity with God that, that when God looks at me, I'm okay. We did it this morning. We sang songs and hymns. Spiritual songs that speak of the greatness and wonder of God. And oftentimes we think that the things that we sing, the words that we sing, and what we say about God is what makes us righteous. Because I do that, because I carry that out. Or the things of the day that are consuming my mind so that when the Word of God is opened, I really am not listening to what God is saying at all. Not thinking certainly about the implications of what's being said about my own life. I'm just going through the motion. I came. I'm here. I closed my eyes. I said some words in song. I'm sitting now with this book open, but I'm really not thinking about it. Being familiar, beloved, can breed in us spiritual complacency. But also, can not thinking rightly about our sin. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. If we, if we minimize the seriousness of sin, then we can be lulled into thinking that when we sin, God just gives us a pass. God just goes, that's okay. You're my child. There's no consequence for that. There's no cost. And so what happens is our view of sin becomes very small. Very small. Is it any wonder that we as Christians sometimes can so easily get caught up in some heinous sin? Doesn't that ever shock you? Well, Can I be one to say that the reason that happens very oftentimes is because we think so lightly of sin? We think so lightly of things we would call a small sin that when it gets to a big sin, we just redefine it as a small sin. The late Puritan John Owen said this, He that has slight thoughts of sin never had a great thought of God. Beloved, when God is big to us, our sin will be big in our eyes. No matter how inconsequential it may seem to humanity around us. A religious routine, small view of God, so that our sin is inconsequential. And of course, if we think sin inconsequentially, if sin is small to us, then of course we will think big of our own self-righteousness. If sin to us is small, then our sense of self-righteousness will be big. Why? Because when my view of sin is small, then God is small. And when God is small, my view of self is elevated to the place where I believe I'm okay. 
And again, I don't, I don't want us to get to the place where we're, where we're walking around doubting our salvation any, each and every time we sin. That's, that's not the thing we ought to be doing. We ought to be examining ourselves, First Corinthians, or Second, uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says. We ought to be examining ourselves if our pattern of life is continual and habitual in those things and we don't care. Yeah, we need to be asking ourselves, maybe I'm not saved, but, but in the regular interaction of humanity and life that we live here on this earth, still battling the flesh, we sin. And when we sin, that sin ought to be taken seriously by us. And when it's taken seriously by us, we see God for who He is and we don't become self-righteous and say, I'm okay. It's no big deal doesn't matter if I sin like that. Self-righteous thinking in our hearts manifests itself in our lives by inaction. Listen, self-righteousness is outworked in our life by inaction when we hear and understand biblical truth. We do nothing with it. Self-righteous hear the truth but they do nothing with it in their lives. So beloved, these are the things about our fallenness that we cannot miss. We must not be dulled by our own familiarity with religious activity. We we must not allow ourselves to be duped with the shallow thinking about sin that can so easily lead us astray and move us towards this elevated sense of self whereby we are self-righteous, believing we are okay in our sin, doing that sin even though we knowingly and are willfully living in it. The sobering truth is that if we do not understand our need, then nothing nothing will move us to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Not even proximity to the greatest man who was ever prophesied to prophesy. God's Word is clear as to the condition of every person who has ever lived. Here it is, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Of course, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Before you think you're righteous, don't. No one is righteous before God. Before you think you understand your own heart and can say, Hey, listen, I know. Yeah, I'm okay with God. You're not. Before you say, well, I'll just come to God. I'll seek after God. I have these views that I'll, I'll come. I'll run to Him when it comes time. You, you will not. Why? Because all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. Why? Because there is no fear of God in their eyes. So here we are in Luke chapter 7, and here's the people. 
Their heart is wicked. Their words are wicked. Their deeds are wicked. The reality is there's no fear of God in their eyes. So Jesus, having validated His own ministry through the miracles that He's been doing, Jesus speaks to the disciples of John, and He validates the ministry of John on the earth. He validates the greatness of John in the redemptive plan of God. And now Jesus describes those who reject Him. And it's a striking indictment. It's a striking indictment focused really intently on the religious leaders, but a striking indictment for any heart that finds themselves in this place where you're curious about religious things, but really you just don't embrace it. Notice what he says in verse 31 to 35. To what then shall I compare the man, the men of this generation? What are they like? Well, they are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Notice, Jesus poses this question. He has posed questions already to the crowd. Who did you go out to see? You go out to see a reed bent up by the wind. You know, when you went out to see John, what was it that drew you out there? Well, you thought he was great. You thought proximity to him would, would, would gather you something. And so Jesus poses another question. What can I compare this generation to be like? You say, well, why, why would he be saying that? Because he's indicting the people for not listening to the message. He's indicting them for sitting there with curiosity and yet not doing anything with what they've heard. In other words, when we hear the message, when we hear the gospel, when we hear the truth, listen, beloved, there is a choice to make. There's a choice that has to be made. You either believe or you reject. Most of the people rejected. Not only have they rejected John, even though they were curious about him, but now they are also rejecting Jesus. Even though John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, the one they were waiting for, and even though his power is on display everywhere he goes. And so the people have been called to listen, and they've been called to respond. You must respond. You cannot just leave it there. You have to respond. In fact, leaving it there is a response. And yet they are responding with curiosity and criticism. They are not responding with conviction. And so Jesus says, to what can I compare you to? What are you like? Jesus is presenting a vivid illustration. Why? Because of what characterized the crowd and the leadership of the Jewish nation. 
And what characterized them as a whole is no matter what Jesus did and no matter what Jesus said, they remained critical and indifferent to what he did or what he said. No matter what the message was, it didn't matter what he said, it didn't matter what he did, it didn't matter if it was him directly or if it was one who came on behalf of God with a message from God, it really didn't matter. They remained critical and they remained indifferent to it. Why? Because they really weren't interested in the truth. That's not what they wanted. Truth for them was inconvenient, was unnecessary. Why? Because they refused to acknowledge their sin. They refused to acknowledge who they really were on the inside. As Luke records in verse 30, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. In other words, they had no real interest in a Savior. They had no real interest in coming to Jesus because they thought, hey, this guy has something for me. No, it was all outward. It was all external. It was all proximity Christianity. They just sat back and criticized whatever Jesus was doing and saying. They sat back and were indifferent to what John did and what John said. And so Jesus asked, to what shall I compare these men to? really great. I mean, not only are we learning theological truth from Jesus, but we are learning about how to teach. Jesus was the master teacher. He, he's the, the, no one taught like Jesus taught. And this is what teachers do. They draw word pictures so that it makes a clear point and people understand what's being said. Jesus was the master of it. And so well, here's all he's saying. How can I illustrate for you what is happening here? How can I illustrate for you so that you see and, and you can put yourself in that picture and go, okay, let me evaluate what's happening. And so he says in verse 32, they're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, you need to understand a little bit about Jewish society in order to, to grasp what's here and then take that principle and, and bring it into our own time. In the center of every town is a place called the Agora. Right? You go to third world countries today and some that aren't third world countries, but Latin American countries and Middle Eastern countries, there's an Agora. That's the Greek word for it. It means marketplace. There's a central marketplace. And on market days, people flood there in order to get goods that they need and to bring goods that they're going to sell to other people who have needs that might be what they have. And so as the families would be there, it would become the favorite place for children to play and run about. When I was a kid, the Agora was the shopping center or the, the department store, and I used to play in the coat racks, you know. Our house oftentimes when I was a kid was somewhat like the Agora. All the children of the neighborhood would come and run about, you know, in the neighborhood. And we would have all kinds of games that we would play. Well, this is what it was. This is the marketplace in ancient times that Jesus is talking about. And as the kids do, they begin to copy what parents do. And so kids would go to funeral ceremonies and kids would go to wedding ceremonies. And in the marketplaces, this is what they'd play. 
Both of those times included a lot of people playing music and doing dancing and all these kinds of things that were going on, weeping happening. And so the children would go through the marketplace and say, hey, we're playing this game. Come with us. And someone, ah, I don't want to play that silly game. I don't want to do that. They just criticize the other kids. They say, okay, we won't play the wedding game. We'll play the funeral game. Come, come on. No, I don't want to play that. It's a stupid game too. Just a dumb game. Didn't matter. No matter what extreme it was and everything in between. Just critical, indifferent. And so the principle is really obvious, I think, isn't it? There are some people who just don't want to be part. They just don't want to be. No matter what it is. It doesn't matter how you approach them. It doesn't matter how they're accommodated. It doesn't matter what you do. They couldn't be bothered with it. Nothing satisfies them. It doesn't matter. You can make the, the, the seats as comfortable as they could be. You can all have chairs that, that were the best thing you ever had. It was, it was cloud pillows, so you never felt the pain, and the blood never rushed to your feet, and you never got tired. My voice could be perfect, and, and like the best singing that you would listen to hours for. Doesn't matter. All that stuff could be accommodated, and yet you're unwilling to participate. Why? Just because you won't be satisfied. Jesus says that's what this generation's like. You're you're like that. You don't. You just don't want to play at all, no matter what is presented to you. You remain indifferent and refuse. You're like the kids in the playground who have no openness, no interest. You're only satisfied with being contrary and self-justified. That's the principle. So now Jesus applies it to the crowd, and he includes the religious leaders. Notice verse 33 and 34. For John the Baptist came eating in no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, here's your response to him, he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Ah, oh, behold, look, he's a gluttonous man, a drunkard. He's a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Well, what's Jesus implying? He's simply saying, Look, John and I came in very different ways. We came completely opposite. John is like a funeral. I don't mean John is a funeral and it's just a dead zone with John. No, but, but it's a very serious, sober-minded thing. He's dressed in camel's hair. He he's, eats locusts and honey. I mean, he's different than anybody else. By all human standards, he's a recluse. He's a hermit. He came with a message of judgment and condemnation and Grace of God through the forgiveness of sins, if you would repent. Talked about the winnowing fork being in the Messiah's hand, and he preached that you have a need, a need for repentance, a need to have your sins forgiven you, a demonstration in your life of the fruit of repentance. He was like that funeral, very serious, very strict. You said to him, yeah, he's possessed by a demon. Can't be true what he said. He's a man possessed. He's weird. He's just a weird guy. That's their final conclusion about John, even though they flocked him for a time. In the end, in their mind, John was just nuts. He was just that weird guy you didn't want to be around. He has to be possessed. 
as we would say in our own vernacular, his elevator didn't go all the way to the top. That was the conclusion about John and his message, just like children in the marketplace. Nah, that's just a stupid game. Following John comes the Son of Man. Jesus uses his earthly title there, by the way, Son of Man. That's, that's the earthly title for the Messiah. In other words, he came in his humanness. Jesus in his humanness, eating and drinking. In other words, he was the opposite of John. God brought John to prepare the way. Jesus comes, he's totally different. Same message, different way. And he comes, he wasn't out in the wilderness, you didn't have to go out to see him, he came to you. He came to your homes, he had meals with you. walked in your village. He went from village to village. He was in your places of work, in your places of rest. He was with you at special occasions. Remember John 2? He's at the wedding in Cana. He was part of the very fabric of everyday life, and yet you say of him, behold, he's a gluttonous man. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. You see, he, he was different than John, and because he was with the people, you criticized him. You criticized John because he wasn't with the people, and you criticized me because I am. So because John was living in the desert, fasting, isolated from the people, you said he was mad and demonically possessed. Because Jesus was with the people, eating and participating with them in everyday life, he was a glutton and a drunkard. You say, what's the point? Well, the entire point that Jesus is making is that they're simply not interested in the truth. It doesn't matter what we do. You can go from one extreme to the other. It really doesn't matter how it's brought to you. The fact of the matter is you're just not interested in it at all. Nothing will satisfy you. One commentator put it this way. William Barclay said it this way. The plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily find enough an excuse for not listening to the truth. Let that sink in a moment. When we don't want to hear the truth, excuses are readily available to us. We manufacture them like a manufacturing plant that's putting out marbles. A thousand a second, we can make any excuse and we satisfy our sin-sick soul with that excuse. Listen, beloved, if people are determined to make no response to the truth, they will remain stubbornly unresponsive no matter what invitation is made to them. This is why it's foolishness for a church to adjust anything that they're doing by way of trying to attract people to the gospel. It's foolish. didn't matter what John did. It didn't matter what the Lord did. They didn't want to participate. We don't want anything to do with it. And listen, that's a bad response to the truth. Would you agree? If it's the truth, the response ought to be, hey, I want to find out the truth. 
So it's a bad response to the truth to not participate with the truth. Why? Because, notice verse 35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The word vindicated is a very interesting word in the original language because it's the word for righteous or justified or proven to be what it is. Wisdom is proven to be wisdom by her children. In other words, you sit back and refuse the truth of the gospel no matter what. Listen, time and truth march together. Over time and in time, your life is a reflection of what you believe and what you're doing. In the end, the truth is justified by what it produces. Jesus is saying to all the people who rejected John, rejected him, rejected the message of John, listen, listen, you think you're close to God? You think you have a relationship with God? Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Wisdom, you think you're wise? Wisdom is justified by what it produces. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says the same thing. Wisdom at its very beginning is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is the reverence of God. To reverence God is to listen to His message. To reverence God is to take His truth, to believe His truth. And wisdom shows that in the life that's embraced it. In the end, the truth is justified by what it produces. You can deny the truth. You can leave the truth. You can say, I don't want to have anything to do with truth. You can ridicule the truth all you want. But in the end, you will have trouble denying it altogether. Why? Because the proof is in the pudding. You say, how do I know? I say, look at your life. Look at what God has done to change you. You were dead and now you're alive in Christ. You think you're close to God and yet you you have no desire for the things of God? You have no desire for the people of God? All you want to do is sit home and watch something on television or tune in at some time to some proximity preacher so that you can say, hey, I'm good and religious and social. I got news for you. You better check yourself at the door. Because the lives of people who understand the truth and know the truth have a wonderful desire in their heart built in by the truth to be with God's people, to be around the things of God, to be under the Word of God, to be absorbing the truth of God and be putting it into their lives. And wisdom is vindicated by that. Jesus says, look at the impact of the truth in the lives of the people who have embraced it. Look at what it's changed in them. Look at the impact of the true church of Jesus Christ throughout the world, beloved. In other words, repentance, which is John's message, and salvation in Jesus, which is Jesus' message, is justified by what it's accomplished in the hearts and lives of those who believed it. The 
the believer embraces the truth, doesn't just throw it aside. The believer isn't indifferent when they hear the truth. They think about it and they think, okay, what are the implications of that for my own life and how do I put that into practice? I've got to start doing that now. This is what God has commanded of me. I, I have to be with God's people. God has gifted me in my own life, in my own heart, to be around the people of God for the equipping of them, for the helping of them. I have to be around them. I can't stay away. Listen, I, I want somebody like the guy in, in, in the earlier parables who came to Jesus paralyzed on a bed. I want somebody to cut a hole in the roof just to get me there. Every believer embraces that truth, doesn't just toss it aside. Why? Because they've repented of their sin. They've thought rightly about sin and they've embraced Jesus as their Savior. You say, is this this really how it is? Yeah. Yeah, We're not going to get into it this morning, but, but just notice, just to kind of put a little seed in our mind, verse 36 to the end of the, the verse 39, Jesus gives us a a living example of this happening. Jesus has talked about this reality, and now here, right before us, is this living example. One of the Pharisees was requesting to dine with him. He enters the Pharisee's house, and he reclines at the table. There's a woman in the city who was a sinner. She learned that she was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, she's weeping. She begins to wet his feet with her tears and keeps wiping them with her hair and kissing his feet, anointing them with perfume. This is a, a graphic scene. Of course, when the Pharisees had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man was a prophet. He would know who this person was touching him. He would know that she's a sinner. I mean, come on, you can't do that and claim to be right with God. Of course, the answer to that reality is seen for us in verses 40 to 50. So here is Jesus saying to the crowd, hey, you went out to John, he was great. What would you think? He was just, just be close to greatness, was going to get you to glory? And then after that didn't work, you just said, ah, oh, John, he's, he's, he's got a demon. So you come to me because of what I'm doing, you think, oh, hey, we'll be around you, this crowd. Hey, look, there must be fire over here. There's smoke, there's a lot of people going. We'll be around Jesus. And yet, you don't want to hear what I have to say. Listen, wisdom is vindicated by what it produces. So Jesus is saying, listen, don't just sit here and try to find everything wrong with me and everything wrong with what I'm calling you to be. That's the foolish response. In the end, the truth is justified by what it produces. So Jesus is simply saying, embrace me through repentance and faith. And wisdom will be vindicated by what relationship that produces in your life. Pretty exciting stuff, eh? 
We'll see the result in the end. It's, it's really good. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. I want to go this morning. But you guys won't come back if I do. So let's close for a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for this message. Thank you for loving us like that. Your word. Like a hammer. Pounding on the chisel to break out the hardness of our heart. Sharper than any two-edged sword dividing down to the thoughts and intentions, Lord. Convict us where we need it. Challenge us in those things. Don't allow us, Lord, if we are your people, don't allow us to sit comfortable. To just be satisfied and to think small of you, small of sin. Lord, help us come to you with a genuineness of repentance and forgiveness that you give that we might live for you, take these things as you would have them. And we'll rejoice in the end. We'll rejoice no matter, no matter what that means for us in this world, whether it means we be small or known, whether we have much or none. Just to be in your kingdom is greater than anything. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.